Um, I'm going to transition to our teaching. We are in a teaching series called The Whole Story, um, and this is um, really directed at us being able to track the whole story of the Bible. Now, we're using these little, like, notebooks. Um, if you are new and you'd like one of these, um, I've got Kyle in the back with a big stack of these. If you'd like one of these, they're free. free. Um, raise your hand. Kyle will run around right now. Does anybody want one? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm going to let Kyle do that if you'd like one. Um, now, any particular part of the Bible, any particular story, is a specific chunk of human history. Have you thought about that before? Any part of the Bible that you read, though it often feels like a story, is a chunk of human history. Now, many of us know that all of human history is an ongoing story of who God is, it's an ongoing description of how he engages with humanity, uh, what his posture is towards us. That's a familiar idea. A lot of us are familiar with it. We know that it's all connected to Jesus. We know that Jesus kind of illuminates the Old Testament and, and explains it and fulfills it. But if we really get into the details of any specific like, story in the Old Testament, how it connects to Jesus, how that's all tied as a whole unified history, uh, it can get a little bit murky. Does anyone agree with me there? Indeed. Now, the reason we're going through this uh, sermon series is to build both skill and familiarity with knowing the story of the Bible and then being able to point the Old Testament stories forward to Jesus, to bring him into it, to grow our whole knowledge of what the story of human history has to do with the story of God. Here's one reason that's important. When we realize that the stories of the Bible are human history, we realize that God is present in human history. We realize that there's a real God in real history, and that real God is really present in Ukraine. It is, he is really present in America. If, if our God is conceptual in like some fairy tales from the past, we have no meaningful hope in our current reality. But when the, the fairy tales are actually history and God was really there, it means he's really here. And that is a huge distinction. What that also means, as we looked at last week, is that the serpent is really here too. I would argue that there has never been a human being killing another human being that was not spiritually motivated by the serpent. There has never been a war in human history that was not tied to the reality of the serpent. But the good news is that if God is real and the serpent is real, it means that God's promise of redemption also is real. It's not tied to some fairy tales. It's not tied to our meditation. It's not tied to our quiet time. It's actually tied to the substance of reality. It's tied to our every day. And this is our focus for today. Our focus is that God's promise of redemption is real. It begins in the bud here in Genesis chapter three, and then it carries and it begins to grow and take a little bit of shape uh, from Genesis three through Genesis 11. And that is what we're tracking today. Now there's two key themes that I would love for you to write down. If you're doing the whole note thing, write these down because this is what our whole day is driven by. Number one, the theme of the seed of the woman. We'll explain this here in a little bit. The second one is the theme of redemption 
promised. You'll see that today it is only a nugget of promise. It's there. I think you will inarguably see it, but you'll also feel that it's not like, it's not a full picture. Because remember, Jesus illuminates the Old Testament and he fulfills it. So we, we have a concrete idea of what that redemption is through Christ. But as we look at these stories, um, it's only developing. So we're going to follow these two themes through three and a half stories. The first story is Cain and Abel. We're going to follow that then into Noah and the flood. There's a half story after that about Noah's sons. And then the third story is the Tower of Babel. Now, those are all, <laughs> that's a lot, right? For those of you that are familiar with those stories, that is a lot to get through. Um, so we're going to move fast today. Uh, anytime I read scripture, it'll be on the screen. I would encourage you to follow it in your Bibles also, but know this, it's going to feel a little jumpy because we're, we're focusing on the biggest nuggets that relate to the woman's seed and redemption promised. And there's a whole lot more in any of these individual stories that's important, but we're just not going to have a lot of time. So we're going to move real fast. Now, because we're going to move so quickly, I'm sensitive that not all of us know these stories inside and out. In fact, some of us haven't uh, heard these stories since like our kids read it or our parents read it to us as kids, or we have no Christian history and this is brand new. So here's what these stories are in a 60 second nutshell. Okay. Adam and Eve take of the fruit and eat. Sin enters the story. God covers them and sends them out of the garden. They have two children, their firstborn named Cain, and then their secondborn named Abel. They, uh, Cain and Abel present offerings to God. There's, um, God accepts Abel's offering and then says, Cain, I'm sorry, your offering is not acceptable. Would you like to try again? Cain gets mad and gets frustrated and God goes to him and says, Cain, what's wrong? If you just change your offering, like I'm here, Cain instead goes and takes his brother Abel out into the field and murders him. It is the very first death in human history. Cain is banished into the east called a uh, land called Nod. Um, and then Adam and Eve are stuck with no children. Not sure what's going to happen. They conceive again and they have a son named Seth. Not a whole lot is said about Seth. Uh, we're going to follow his lineage really quick down a couple of lines. And then we're going to get to a man named Noah. Uh, you guys are probably familiar with like, this one, like, familiar, Noah and the flood. The world is full of sin and evil, and God says, I wish I never made any of it. But there's one man that I'm going to rescue from this flood of destruction. I'm going to wipe out the earth, start fresh. I'm going to save one family and try all again. So Noah builds the ark, the flood happens. They take the animals two by two, right? They get off the ark. Right away, something happens with Noah's sons. His son named Ham does something, and we don't quite know what. Uh, Noah curses Ham. And then there's a genealogy that follows all three of Noah's sons. And then we get to the Tower of Babel, which is kind of following these genealogies. There's then this final capstone story of, and then look where it all kind of ended up. And there's this Tower of Babel where humans gather and they say, we're going to build the biggest city with the biggest tower in the world. And it's going to go all the way up to the heavens. And, and comically, God comes down and goes, what are you guys doing? Oh, a tower. That's so big. Um, and so they build a tower up to the heavens and say, this tower is going to be what keeps us from being spread out. We will build a kingdom for ourselves. Um, and then God scatters them with, by uh, taking away a common language. He gives them multiple languages, and they end up scattering of their own accord. Whew, that's a lot. We're going to go follow each of those stories through Scripture. 
So we're going to be moving quick. We're going to look at the highlight verses, but I want you to at least know plot lines so that as we're going through, we can track. Now, before we can get in, there's one really big theological concept, or two rather, that we need to start with. Number one is that the Bible um, is progressive, redemptive revelation. Here's what that means. It means that is, is the revelation of God in the world. God is saying, here's who I am through human history. He's revealing himself. And that revelation is progressive, meaning it occurs over time. It gets more and more specific over time. And it is redemptive, meaning it's revealing himself progressively in the act of redemption. Does that make sense? Here's why this is important. Um, who here thinks it's good news that Jesus has redeemed us? Yeah, oh my, that's great. Here's, here's the challenge. As we read the Old Testament, these people had no idea who Jesus was. God's promise of redemption was a 99% mystery. And you'll see that in these stories. And so we can over quickly jump to the Sunday school answer of like, oh, why is the Tower of Babel relevant? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> why is the story of Cain and Abel relevant? Jesus. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and that's true. All of these stories point to him, but we can miss the mystery and the depth that it builds. So in many ways, we're going to leave Jesus out of these stories while letting those connections build in the background. Now, the second theological concept or tool that's important is that tension can be used as a hook on purpose by the author. Here's why that's important. As we go through these stories, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be like, Wait, you just like totally left out really important information. And then you're going to go, why is there this weird genealogy that just like stops? And then we go back to the main story. There's going to be frustrations here. It's going to feel like um, the actions made by both humans and by God, they're inconsistent, they're bizarre. Some of that could be because we're just asking a set of questions the author was not trying to answer. The author was going on this path and we're coming at it from this path. And they just don't line up. So the author has a set of questions or a set of information they're trying to give. And so it helps when we align ourselves with their mentality. But the other reason is that author is intentionally leaving a hook. The author wants you to feel a little bit of like, what? And that sense of frustration or curiosity drives us then to ponder. And it drives us to understand more fully. Here's kind of what I mean. Um, you guys know those like super cheesy puzzles you give to kids that an adult could do in like eight seconds? You don't give a puzzle to a kid and then go, oh, look. Oh, and by the way, this, it goes like this, 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 done. There you go. Here's your puzzle. No, you give a kid a puzzle with a bunch of pieces that feel like they don't line up and then you step back and you watch and take photos and videos while they're like, eh. and then they finally figure it out and they hold it up and they're proud and they understand. In many ways, ancient writers use that same educational tool. They would say, here's a bunch of misaligned pieces. Have fun. And when we like put the, the square peg in the round hole for a while and we don't get it and then finally we go, oh, that's why. That's what they're doing. They're giving you a puzzle and they want us to wrestle with it. Now, with all of that, you guys ready to jump in? Okay, here we go. The story so far is that God created a kingdom and he's the king. 
but he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected the call, which led to sin and death. This is where we left off last week. This is in the Bible called the fall. Um, it's the entry of sin and separation from God into the story, uh, right? The serpent tempts the woman. The woman believes the serpent and the doubt in her own heart. She takes the fruit and eats. She gives it to her husband. Man and woman in shame attempt to cover themselves. They try to hide from God's presence. God fairly curses the man and the woman, and he that affects the whole earth. He sends them out of the garden. And interestingly, the story doesn't end. You ever thought about that? God made a beautiful garden, made some humans to represent him. They ruined it. Like that would be kind of a logical ending. All the good stuff stopped, period. God started over. But the story, it just kind of keeps trucking. It just keeps going. Because God is dedicated to his creation. It wasn't just a random project, an experiment. He was dedicated to the people that he was creating. So he chose redemption rather than destruction, which is what we are following today. Now, before that part of the story ends, God curses the serpent, which is this like spiritual evil character. Uh, God promises that there will be enmity, meaning like hostility between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then he promises that the seed of the woman will strike the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike the heel of the woman's seed. Now, the very last thing that happens is God covers the humans and he sends them out of the garden. And it's this like ellipses. He sends them out of the garden, dot, dot, dot. That's what we're following today. And so the story that we follow is God created a kingdom. He's the king, but he made humans to represent him in that kingdom. Now, Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death, but God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman. Would you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? This is where the seed is first mentioned, it's first given importance. This is where it becomes something you keep track of. Is halfway through the curse on the serpent, God says this in 3.15. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity, meaning hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And the literal word there is seed. He shall bruise or strike your head and you shall bruise or strike his heel. This is the very first time that God use, puts words to the promise of redemption. And it feels a bit vague, but again, I guarantee you, as you follow this, it will be inarguably true that this is the very first promise of redemption. So in this story, we see redemption promised in two ways. One, through God's words, and two, through God's actions. His words, we just heard him say, was that there will be enmity between you and the seed of the woman. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So we know the serpent's head will be struck. Again, we know the serpent is a spiritual being. He is a source of evil. He represents mistrust and separation from God. And he is a character in all ways opposed to God's plans. 
we know that his head will be struck. We also know that he will strike back. We know that crushing the serpent will cost someone something. But we also know that it will not be fatal. God also promises redemption in his actions. Now, there's never any like big billboards that like say, hey, look at God's actions. This is part of those puzzle things where you start to wrestle and you go, oh, it's there. As you look at his actions, number one, he covers Adam and Eve. They're naked and ashamed and they're attempting to cover themselves. And God doesn't say, oh, that's really poor. Sorry, get out of the garden. He actually says, no, I'm going to step in and cover you more fully. And we know that, again, God covering them, he covers them with animal skins. And so we know that God's covering of them costs someone something. And in this case, it is sacrificial animals. In Genesis 3, 22, or 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Now, the second action here is potentially even more vague, though again, inarguably there. He follows them. He covers them. He sends them out of the garden. And in the very next story that follows, he's still in relationship with them. God doesn't stay in the garden and kick people out. He does send them out, but he follows them. It is the promise of redemption. Now, at this point in the story, we have really high hopes for the seed. The seed is the very first language put to the serpent's head will be struck. It will be crushed by Eve's seed. Now, we're getting to the very first moment. Remember the Sunday school answer? Like, oh, who is the seed? Jesus? Yeah, you're right. But if we hang on to the mystery for a moment, let's ask. According to the story, God has said there will be a seed that will crush the serpent. And then the very next story is a story about Eve's seed. To an Old Testament listener, this would have, like, you'd go, oh, the seed, it's here, okay. How are you going to crush him? What's going to happen? Okay, let's do it. Let's read the story. This is Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. This is the seed's very first step. And we're wondering, how will it go down? Verse 1, now Adam knew, means made love with Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, which literally means gotten or received. And she said, because I have gotten or I have received a man with the help of the Lord. It sounds a lot like the seed, right? God has given me a man specifically from God. Verse 2, again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, meaning accepted it, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard or did not accept it. Now, you can get into some theories of why that is, but for today, that's not very important. Um, what's important is this next part. Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, remember what I said about he followed them out of the garden? God is literally speaking to people still. He has followed them. He has not abandoned them into darkness. He has gone with them. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? 
Why has your face fallen? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Eight sentences ago, the serpent was promised enmity between Eve's seed and the serpent. And then in the very next story, God says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is saturated with the curse on the serpent. This is Eve's very first seed. This is like God is specifically saying there's enmity between you and the serpent, Cain. You must rule over him. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. At this point in the story, the seed of the woman, remember, named gotten or received from God, this man more closely resembles the serpent than he does the God who made him. There was enmity between the man and the serpent and the man lost. And interestingly, this is one of those parts where the story does like a random detour. And if we're reading it, um, it can just feel confusing. The story does this random detour where it then follows Cain's line and it ends up at one of Cain's descendants named Lamech. And I want to follow that for a moment because it is so interesting. Um, Would you go forward two slides, please? This is Genesis chapter four, verse 17. Uh, Verse 17 says, Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. And then it goes on for a couple verses talking about his lineage. Enoch had Irad and then Mahujael and then Methushael and then Lamech. And this line like stops here and it's real peculiar, but notice this. If we're paying attention to seeds, look at where Cain's seed ends up. Verse 23, Lamech brags to his wives. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Do you guys remember an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth from the Sermon on the Mount? That justice was restricted to an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. What Cain's seed is bragging about is you strike me, I murder you. He's literally bragging about injustice. He's bragging about a revengeful spirit. This is the end of Cain's seed. The Bible is saying this is where Cain ends up. Look what happens to his descendants. Again, Cain's bloodline more closely resembles the serpent than they do the God who made them. And we're left asking, what now? In the biblical narrative, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. Look where Cain's seed ends up. Adam and Eve don't have any more seeds. What's going to happen? And then the biblical narrative picks back up. The end of chapter 4, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Seth, which means appointed. For she said, God has appointed me or appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. 
she literally names him like a parallel for the chosen one. Do you see what's happening here? It's the seed. What's going to happen? What will this, like, what's going to occur? And so the Bible doesn't say much more about Seth other than following his genealogy. And now we're, so remember we followed Cain's line and we saw where it ended up in revenge and bitterness. Now it says, but there's a new seed of the line of Seth. And the very next thing is it follows Seth's line. We're following the seed, okay? So turn with me to Genesis chapter five, verse one. And then we're gonna skip some genealogy and get to verse 28. But notice this verse one, chapter five, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Adam, Seth, right? We're following the line of Seth. Enosh, Canaan, Mahalal. I'm going to stop. I can't pronounce those. And then it gets to verse 28. And this is a different Lamech. Same name, different person. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, which means rest or relief. And he said, because out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, my son, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Do you guys remember God's curse on Adam? Was that his work would be unsatisfying and hard. The, the soil of the earth would fight against him. And now we're following the seed of Adam to a man who is named rest and relief. And his son says, this man will bring us relief from the curse. That's literally what Noah's father is proclaiming over his son. So what we're seeing is people are like guessing. They're guessing, when will this seed come? Who will it be? Who will bring us relief from the serpent? Who will strike his heel? Sunday school answer, Jesus. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> like, but for this family, what would they have known? Who is it going to be? Now, this brings us to the second story, and we're going to pick up our pace a little bit. This is in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. We're getting to Noah. Verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, Quote, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Man, animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. <sighs> There's a hope. There's a hope in the seed. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. At this point in the story, it does not only feel like there's enmity between the serpent and mankind. It actually feels, again, that the serpent is winning. Mankind more closely resembles the serpent than they do the God who made them. God himself said, the wickedness of man is great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. But God leaves a door open for redemption. To Noah, he says, I will blot out the earth I will blot out men, animals, every creeping thing, and the birds of the sea, or birds, birds of the sea, <laughs> birds of the sky. But then right after that, he expresses to Noah that he's not shutting the door on redemption. He's preserving the seed. He's preserving it and making a way for redemption to continue. And he does it by rescuing Noah. So then in verse nine, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, 
and Noah walked with God. Remember, God followed them. Even in Noah, Noah walked with God. God is with him. God has not abandoned them. He has followed them into the world. So God tells Noah, verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Fast forward to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant, meaning promise with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, plus some animals. But notice the seed. The world is like flooded with evil. So God says, I'm going to remove evil and preserve the seed. I promise you, I will protect you. I will make a way of rescue and redemption. Fast forward to Genesis 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the deep burst forth. The windows of the heavens were opened. Rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. But on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, they entered the ark. Everything on the dry land, verse 22, sorry, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man, animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah, the seed, was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. It's just amazing how much like the seed, the promise, the seed, the promise. It's like, it's a driving narrative here. Now, before we can go much further, um, there is something interesting in the flood narrative. And we're not gonna spend much time here, but I do wanna point it out. The flood narrative is almost uh, a exact parallel for a recreation of the world. There's a moment where the earth is covered with chaotic waters and God sends wind and hovers over them like the Holy Spirit in the beginning. And he breathes over and the, water, the chaotic waters begin to subside. And then Noah opens a window and light streams into the ark and now there is light. And then the waters continue to recede and now there is dry land. And then Noah sends out a bird and all of a sudden there's vegetation. And then Noah lands the ark and he sends out animals. And God blesses the animals, just like the creation narrative. And then Noah and his family leave the ark. And now humans are present. And then God blesses the humans, just like the creation narrative. It's like this weird, not weird, intentional parallel. Now, here's why that's important. Who's Noah? He's the seed, right? He's the seed. He's the one who will bring us relief. At least Lamech is guessing at that. Um, so I'm going to skip forward a little bit. Uh, down to, um, I'm going to skip over verse chapters 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 and get to Noah and this idea that Noah is in a brand new garden. So if the flood narrative is paralleling creation, it means that God has created a new theme of garden. So if Noah is the seed, it means that Noah is this new kind of Adam. He's this new kind of representative of humanity. Now, um, at the end of this, sorry, I'm getting a little jumbled. At the end of the flood narrative, at the end of the recreation of the world, God ends it with a promise. And this is what he says in chapter 9, verse 11. God says, I will establish my covenant with you, 
that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant or the promise that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And then he says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God is promising. He's adding a new layer of progressive, redemptive revelation. He's adding a new layer of promise here. And there's something I need to explain of what the bow represents. So the image that God says, I will put my bow in the clouds. That is the rainbow, right? Like, at least as best as we understand it, is there is like this pointing of the rainbow as a symbol of God's promise that we can see. But the word that um, the writer of Genesis uses, he, he doesn't say the word rainbow. He says bow. And when he says bow, he literally means like bow and arrow, but not like a kitty bow and arrow. This means like a war bow. This is the kind of bow you carry into battle. And so God says, I will hang my bow of war in the sky as a sign that I will never destroy you again. I'll never flood the whole world again. Now, this is one of those puzzle pieces that sounds maybe mythological and, and unimportant, but it's a symbol of God revealing himself. So if the dangerous side of the bow and arrow is the curvy side, right? God hangs his bow in the cloud. What direction is the dangerous pointy end of the bow and arrow pointing? Up. Is God actually like floating in the sky? No, but God uses the heavens as a symbol for humanity to understand him. So God is literally saying, I will hang my bow of war and point it at myself. That never again will I destroy you, but I will now point my destruction at myself. God is revealing himself progressively. Is the answer Jesus? Yes. <laughs> but to these people, they're beginning to say, oh, God's going to take something on himself. He will take the cost of this on himself in a new way. So with this brand new self-sacrificial promise hanging over the brand new garden, let's take a look at what happens. What's gonna happen with Noah the new Adam, the new seed. Genesis chapter nine, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now notice Ham was the father of Canaan. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and they laid it on both their shoulders. And then they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, when, Anoah, when Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Notice he's cursing the seed of Ham. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of serpents shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, this is a weird story, right? Noah passes out drunk in a tent, naked. Ham does something, we don't really know what, wakes up, curses Ham. The brothers covered Noah at some point with a blanket. 
uh, we don't really know the details. We don't know what Ham did. We don't fully understand it. But here's where our main themes are driving. Notice that the brand new garden with a brand new Adam ends up with a new misuse of fruit, with a new human naked and ashamed, with a brand new curse. Noah, the one who would bring us relief, naked and ashamed, cursing his own children, cursing his seed. Genesis immediately transitions to follow the genealogy of these three men, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, we're not going to go there because it's long and there's a lot of names, but it goes... And it follows them, and then all of a sudden it transitions to one more final story. And this is uh, Genesis chapter 11, and it is the Tower of Babel. It says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Life would be a lot easier if we all spoke the same language. <laughs> and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. Let us burn or bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Notice they have a brand new technology that has expanded their abilities they could never do before. And then they said, verse four, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They're very clearly making a human kingdom. And it very clearly is a human kingdom that is in opposition to God. God's blessing originally was that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill and cover the earth. And their exact words is, let us make this so we never have to scatter. I'm going to throw our attention back a few weeks, but if you remember, um, Human beings were made in the image of God. And so when God blessed them and said, fill the earth, he's literally saying, fill the earth with little like images of my goodness. Let the whole earth represent me and my goodness through you. That was his blessing and that was his command for human beings. And now human beings are saying, no, we're gonna make a name for ourselves and we're not going anywhere. We're gonna make a tower to the heavens. This is clearly a, a building project in opposition of God. The story picks up in verse five. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing that they propose to do now or that nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, I wanna pause here. The best that these people can do is build a tower so small that God has to come down to see it. <laughs> is God threatened by these people? Is God really worried like, oh no, they're banging on the gates of heaven. No. So this is very clearly not God out of self-preservation feeling threatened about to go do something. So the puzzle piece then is, so why is he doing it? What do people try to do when they're living in opposition to God? Does that turn into good things? 
What do people with power do to other human beings when they're in opposition to the will of God? They abuse and they destroy. God in his mercy is saying, I will not let you build a dystopia. I will scatter you. Verse seven, God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Babel is a word that sounds like the word confuse. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. At this point in the story, we see again that the seed or the offspring of the woman is opposed to God and scattered. They are more resembling the serpent than they are the God who made them. So again, is the Sunday school answer, is this pointing to Jesus? Yes, God is not in opposition to God. Does Jesus bring the kingdom of God as opposed to a human kingdom? Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. But there's a mystery and attention here If we followed the original uh, curse on the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush his head. Cain kills his brother. Okay, restart. We've got Seth. Okay, Seth's line brings us down to Noah, the one who will bring us relief. Noah ends up drunk in a tent, not really sure what happens. That seed obviously doesn't pan out. So God blesses Shem. And then we follow Shem and Ham and Japheth's line. And now we get to the Tower of Babel. And we're not really sure who are we supposed to be watching at this point? And then all of a sudden, God goes and scatters humanity over the face of the earth. To the original listeners of this story, they'd be going, but where's the seed? Who's it going to be? Like there's great tension here. And God is progressively revealing himself and his plan of redemption. Did God end the story when Adam and Eve sinned? No, he left a door for redemption. Did Adam give up when Cain, the very first um, seed, killed his brother? No, he left a door for redemption. Did God give up when Noah passes out drunk and his seed gets ruined? No, he left a door for redemption. When the Tower of Babel, humanity gathers to build a kingdom of human might and God scatters it, what do you think the pattern is? The door is open to redemption. And so through these like mixed up jumbled puzzle pieces where God's doing all this weird stuff and has all these like kind of confusing promises, what's like the themes that are driving this whole narrative is keep an eye on the seed and look at God's ongoing dedication to redemption over and over and over. Even like the greatest uh, story of destruction in the flood is really an ongoing dedication to redemption. The whole world is evil. I wish I never made it, but I'm leaving the door open for redemption. Noah, build an ark. I'm gonna build a new garden. I'm gonna give you a new Adam. Now, as we wrap up our time, I think we're seeing all these signposts to Jesus. We're making all these connections. And I so badly want to end there. I think you probably feel that too. And you're probably used to us as a church. Like we're a gospel-centered church. We delight in Jesus. We regularly wrap him up. But there's a tension that I kind of want us to hold. Like there's a mystery 
in these pages that if we just do the Sunday school thing and just go, oh, but thank goodness Jesus, like there's a tension that we don't benefit from. And so we're actually gonna end it here in this really uncomfortable spot where Cain failed and Noah failed and mankind failed. God, where are you gonna save us? There's mystery here. God, what are you gonna do? And there's mystery when the whole world looks chaotic, when God is doing crazy things. God, where is your door for redemption? What door are you leaving open? The world doesn't make sense. Where is your door for redemption? Right now, the story is about this broad. God is just scattered, poof, the nations of the world, and we don't know who to watch. And we're left with the question. Next week, God is going to laser focus on one man and one family. And he is going to reveal his plan of redemption and the next step in it. And it is going to be good news. I hope you come and join us and continue to follow God's plan of redemption. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that there is a long lineage of human beings wrestling with where are you. And we have little pockets of history where you reveal yourself more and more and more that you are a God who is dedicated. You followed us out of the garden. You've continued to be patient. You've continued to make a way for redemption since day one. And we have great hope in Jesus. He is our hope. And yet, there were thousands of years of people asking the question, where will our redemption come from? And they followed you still. Or would you grow us and mature us that even in the question of God, what will you do next? We follow you. We place our hope in Jesus Christ. Or would you grow our biblical literacy that we see these stories as beautiful and compelling not just fairy tale. Father, we love you. Amen.